Welcome to the McCarthy Report, the podcast where I, Rich Lowry, discuss with Andy McCarthy the latest legal and national security issues. This week, what else? The latest on the Gaza War and the Trump trial. By the way, if for some reason you aren't already following us on a streaming service, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And please give this podcast and Andy McCarthy the glowing, indeed gushing five-star reviews they deserve on iTunes. And now, without further ado, I welcome to this very podcast through the miracle of Riverside, none other than Andy McCarthy. Rich, how are you? I'm not too bad, Andy. How are you? I'm okay. I'm I'm trying to decide whether whether and how to wade into your um, your battle with your editor's colleagues on uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. Yep, yep. Um, because it's it seems like it's the kind of um, movie I would hate. So I'm inclined to agree with you. Thank you. Um, thank you. <laughs> but it turns Martin Scorsese is um, is my fellow member of the uh, Cardinal Hayes High School Hall of Fame. He's um, wow class of uh, he's class of 1960, and I'm class of 1977. But um, I didn't know until I heard you guys arguing about. Not that I, I I know Maddie and Charlie didn't hadn't seen it themselves yet. They, I think they Ma- Maddie, Maddie seen it and she agrees oh. with the fathers. Really? Yes. Wow. All yeah. right. So well, we might have another... to take this up tomorrow on the, on the, oh, boy. On the editor's pod. Oh. Yeah. So, so it turns out that Scorsese, apparently, they do the last scene at Hayes, which I didn't know until I read this uh, write-up that they had at the, uh, at the Cardinal Hayes alumni section of the website um, yesterday. And, of course, I, that actually excited me a little bit about the movie, even though the topic – and I, I'm so tired of De Niro. I don't know if I can take him at this point anymore. Um, but then I read the great Armand White's review and yeah. the follow-up that he wrote. About it. I'm like, how can I sit through this thing? So I, yeah. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Uh, I don't know. So whether you believe Maddie or me, Kyle Smith, and Armand White, that's that's the question, Andy. But, uh, <laughs> no, I, a, a lot it's of a lot, a lot of pressure. Of people, a lot, a lot of people of love it. A lot of people love it. So uh, yeah, you should see it yourself at, at some point. But maybe, maybe where you in a setting where you have a fast forward button, that would be my yeah. Three hours and what's it? Three hours and twenty minutes. Three and a half. Yeah. Three and a half. All right. So any quick election take before we we dive into the latest on Gaza? Yeah. Except when you said three and a half hours just now, I just thought the last time I was that miserable was watching the Jets play the Giants. I know we weren't <laughs> going to do sports, but um, so the election, you know, I think it's a bigger I think it's a bigger deal than uh, a lot on a lot of people on our side. do. I, I agree with um, a lot of the stuff that's been written on our website that. It's an overstatement to to regard it as if it were a catastrophe. It's it's certainly a disappointment, but to me, um, and I'm really inclined to agree wholeheartedly with uh, with Noah Rothman on this. I just think it's another data point for what a catastrophe Republicans are courting by nominating Trump, even as day by day as we go by. Um, it, it seems more and more certain that that's precisely what they're going to do. I thought the debate last night, for example, was very interesting, but, um, you know, I'm inclined to agree with you that, you know, if the main event isn't there, um, which he wasn't, 
it kind of makes the whole thing seem mm-hmm. irrelevant. But I just don't. Um, I I hear what you're saying about you know the, the whole if the election were held today, in the wake of that um, New York Times Siena poll that came out uh, last week. But the thing is. You know, leaving aside the obvious, which is that the election, of course, isn't being held today, um, I don't think it makes sense to talk about if the election were held today without factoring in the most consequential ingredient of the election, which is if the election were held today, the Democrats would have started their onslaught that hasn't started Mm -hmm. yet. They would have done that six months ago, at least. Yeah, Yeah, fair enough. Um, And it would be, you know, the numbers would look very different. And, you know, Rich, I thought that when, if you crawled into that poll, um, when you factor in the reality of the race, which is that it's not going to be a two-way race, it's a three-way race. Well, then Mm -hmm. once it's a three-way race, Trump isn't winning in five of those six states anymore. Mm -hmm. He's losing in, he's, what's it, three Biden, two Trump, and one tied. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't. I, I think that the the surge when you give a third choice to people who are being polled, the surge for the for Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who is a five alarm friggin' nut, that most people don't even. I I, I mean, if twenty five people or twenty four nineteen to twenty four percent of people in this country are thinking of voting for that guy, that means they haven't investigated. <laughs> what he's, you know, what he yeah. stood for overall. They're voting for the name, you know. Yeah. The oh, Kennedy. there's the Kennedy. That's nice. Yeah, yeah right. Um, but what it reflects is that both parties do not want the current front runners to run. I mean, I thought one of the most interesting things that came out of the election in Ohio, only 33 percent of Republicans want Trump to run. Mm-hmm. That, that was the polling that came out of the election. I mean, people don't want Trump. And I think that the election the other night is just another data point that where he's front and center and where the candidates who are, who are on the ballot are somehow associated with his stop the steal claims, we lose. And we don't just lose. I mean, we often get our doors blown off. So yeah. I just think... The, the 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 terrible dynamic of this race is that Trump is pretty popular in the Republican Party, not nearly as popular as he would have you think. I mean, I think he's got very strong support from his core supporters uh, who are like over the moon in support of him. And then he's got probably two thirds of the party or more who are willing to vote for him if he's the nominee, but he's got 25% at least who won't vote for him under any circumstances. And then because we're immersed now in Republican politics because of the primary, it becomes a second or third order issue, but it's the most important issue that when you go, when you open the lens from the Republican base or the Republican voter to the nationwide electorate, that's going to be an issue in November, he never gets better than 56% disapproval. And by the time the Democrats are done with him, I don't even know where that number is going to be. It's been as high as 67 in the past. So I, I just, I don't see how this guy, 
I not only don't see how he wins, that's, it, it doesn't, you know, it's, I'm not invested in, um, you know, I don't think he can win, but, you know, that's kind of beside the point. The more important thing is the dynamic of the election will be if he's the nominee, Republicans are probably going to lose the Senate and the House, and then the Democrats will get to get rid of the filibuster and do all the other crazy stuff that they've been planning to do. So to me, that's the catastrophe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I, I can't prove you're, you're wrong. Um, but more to the point that there's, uh, there's a chance you're right, which is, which is why even though I'm more bullish on Trump's yep. chances, you do something else. And, and just because to avoid the risk that, right. that your, your take is, is right. Plus there's the question of governance, which, which would be rather important as well. So let's actually, I, I was planning to do Gaza first. Let's, let's, I'm going to actually call an audible and go into the, the Trump civil fraud trial yep. first, and then we'll come back to Gaza. So we had Trump's testimony on Monday, right? And, um, you know, it was kind of what you would expect of Trump testimony, a lot of, a lot of fireworks. And then you had Ivanka recording on Thursday morning here yesterday. Uh, what, what's, um, any anything move the needle here? No, but you know because it can't, right? Uh, the judge already yeah. <laughs> ruled on the main issue before the trial started. That's I was I, I had trouble. I they I was actually doing a Fox thing last night, and while they had me on, um, they cut to uh, Alina Haba, who is one of Trump's lawyers, the one who gave the fiery um, press conference in front of the yeah. courthouse the other day. Um, and she, they cut to her while I was on and she said she was all whipped up after Ivanka's testimony. And she said, and tomorrow we're going to come in and move to dismiss this case because they obviously haven't made out the elements of the offense. And I had trouble. I, Alina's doing the best she can. I'm not trying to poke fun at her, but, um, I had trouble keeping a straight face because the judge has already ruled against mm-hmm. them. Right. So, yeah. you know, <laughs> right. <laughs> so how's the motion to dismiss going to work out? Right. They were so, all getting sucked into the idea that this was a trial. Well, think of what, yeah, but that that's exactly right. It was a, it was a complete farce. Um, and it, it, so in that sense, it can't move the needle. Um, but I, that doesn't mean some interesting things didn't happen. Um, so before Trump and finally Ivanka testified this week, uh, Don Jr. and Eric testified last week. And, you know, the trajectory of this is basically the Trump kids are saying they didn't get involved in the granular detail of statements of financial condition. Um, and, they left that to Mazars, which was Trump's accounting firm. Uh, Ivanka, they thought they acted like they had a um, a gotcha moment with Ivanka because there were some emails where, when they were discussing terms of a loan, I think it was on the Doral property in Florida, um, the bank wanted an assurance that Trump's net worth was three billion. And she was trying to get it knocked down to two and a half billion. And they acted like the state acted like that was a big deal. It seemed to me the opposite. It seemed to me, number one, that they sh- it showed that they were that, 
you know, they weren't, this wasn't a complete sham. They were actually interested and, and concerned with what the terms were. But also, if Ivanka and the other executives at the company were doing that, that's exactly what executives are supposed to do. You shop around to try to get the best terms. And in a volatile market, we've seen with a lot of these billionaires that their, you know, their net worth goes up and down in the billions mm-hmm. year by year, depending on what financial conditions are, right? So how why would it be bad to try to get it down to two and a half billion rather than three? Because if there's an economic downturn, that ties up a lot of his wealth um, that he would otherwise be able to use to generate more revenue, right? So none of that seemed uh, bad to me. Um, and then Trump, of course, is not fighting this as a legal case. He's fighting it as a political battle because the judge has already indicated him he can't win the legal case. So he understands that whatever recourse he has is going to be on appeal. So he's fighting this politically. To the extent he's addressing the substance of the case, it's typical Trump. His If they're saying that he overvalued his assets, his position is that he undervalued them. And that they're actually worth much, much more uh, than even they put in the uh, statements of financial condition, which I don't know that that argument actually helps him, but I don't think he cares about it as a legal Mm -hmm. argument. I mean, it doesn't really help you legally because you're basically saying, I didn't think it needed to be accurate. (laughs) He's just saying, you know, he's just saying. So why why doesn't his caveat argument win the day? Is it is it because you're saying something that you're supposed to believe is true, and the the judge has ruled no, you believed it was false, and you're exaggerating. So it doesn't matter that you have this language elsewhere that says, hey, 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 don't don't believe any of this. Yeah. So Trump called this the worthless clause mm-hmm. in his. It's it's a disclaimer, but he called it the worthless clause, and the judge has seized on that. Um, because I think, you know, let's remember Arthur N. Garan is an elected Democrat in the New York system. That's how uh, trial court judges get to be judges. And he's pretty much followed Tish James as the attorney general's mm-hmm. lead throughout this proceeding. And he was particularly snarky in his pretrial motion, or his pretrial um, summary judgment opinion when he was addressing this argument by Trump. Um, And he seized on the fact that Trump called it a worthless clause uh, in the sense that what Trump meant by that was that the representations in the statement of financial uh, condition are essentially worthless because evaluating the value of assets is a subjective business to begin with. But because you're dealing with sophisticated economic actors in these transactions, all these guys, this is big finance, right? These are big banks and big insurance companies and billionaire counterparty on the other end. Uh, Everybody does their own due diligence. You know, if you go into JP Morgan Chase and you say, you know, I need an $800 million loan and here's my collateral and it's worth uh, $2 billion, JP Morgan Chase doesn't say, oh, okay, that's fine. You know, they go out and investigate it. They have whole departments that that's all they do is evaluate risk. So that to me, that should 
win the day. And um, when we ask why it doesn't, one of the things you have to bear in mind, Rich, is that this is an unprecedented case. Everybody who's looked into this um, has come away saying that New York State has never brought a case, even under this monstrous statute, Section 6312, which doesn't require them to prove that there's fraud victims or that there was intent to deceive or any of that stuff. They've never brought a case that was based solely on an, an alleged inflation of the value of assets in which there were no victims or no one claimed that they had been in mm -hmm. any way um, deceived. So this is a first. So, you know, why you, when you say, why doesn't that win the day? My, my initial reaction to that is, um, I think your point is exactly why they don't bring these cases, you mm -hmm. know, because they shouldn't be brought in the first place because there's no, there's no harm. The judge has dismissed this claim and his rationale is that even if the other party is going to, you know, cut the cards, is going to, um, you know, check your valuations, you still don't have a right to say something that you know is not true. So if I give you, um, you know, a piece of fine art as collateral, and I happen to know that it's a knockoff, it's not what it's represented to be, and instead of wor being worth $100,000, it's actually worth, you know, 100 bucks. Um, if I know that and I hand you the thing and I say, I'm valuing it th this at 100000 but you really ought to do your own due diligence, um, yes, I've given you notice that you should do your own investigation, but that doesn't make it right for me to represent, mm -hmm. the, you know, to misrepresent the value. So that's the judge's point. And I, I think that, um, you know, just putting aside all the partisan uh, incentives here, to give the judges due, he's right about that. Um, if you if you know something is worth uh, X and you represent to another party that it's worth 10 times X, that's wrong. But when whenever we talk about these kinds of matters, we have to consider prosecutorial discretion, right? There's all kinds of things that are technically wrong that don't get prosecuted because no real harm gets done. And it, it simply isn't the case that every time there's a technical infraction of the kind that Judge Engeron is talking about, that New York State jumps in and prosecutes. They don't. Um, and, you know, the other thing here, and this is, this is more, I think, a matter of my uh, objection to the nanny state nature of all of this, but does anyone really think that that Tish James is better at evaluating risks than J.P. Mm -hmm. Morgan Chase? I mean, mm -hmm. you know, these these guys are the most sophisticated financial actors that you're going to find, more so than government bureaucrats, and they have skin in the game which the government doesn't. So. They wouldn't have transacted with Trump unless they thought it was safe to do it and they were going to make money. And yeah. the reason that nobody came forward is no one got hurt. Yeah, and they, and they they knew they weren't dealing with George Bailey uh, in in these in these transactions. But this this is what the trial is about now, though. Though, right? Is is uh, the theory 
that these financial institutions suffered a, a grievous financial harm from Trump's overvaluation of his assets. Therefore, uh, Trump and his organization need to d- disgorge this $250 million that Tish James is after. Yeah, that's right. And along those lines, Rich, I think James and Engeron are hypersensitive to Trump's main claim here, which is that there were no victims, which should be the beginning and end of all of this, right? Um, so what they've undertaken to do is two things. One, they shut him down and they shut the defense, the Trump defense down every time they point out that there was no victims. Every time Chris Kyes or Alina Haba or any of Trump's other lawyers or Trump himself make that obvious point, which anyone who was representing a, a, a client in this kind of a case would be hammering away at that day after day after day, right? Um, every time they say that, the judge gets all uppity and cuts them off and says, I've already ruled this was fraud. I've already ruled that. We're only dealing now with the amount. Um, so on the one hand, we're supposed to be having this trial about the amount. And at, on the other hand, he's saying that they can't challenge the fact that there was fraud. So if you're trying to, if you're trying to defend yourself from somebody saying that you defrauded someone to, you know, to, to X amount, and you're not even allowed to challenge whether it was actually fraud in the first place. What what do you have in the trial for? It's just it's mm-hmm. it's ridiculous. But the other thing they've done, realizing um, that it's a big hole in the case not to have victims, is they're trying to invent victims. So they had they had a um, an expert witness in bank finance uh, testify last week that because Trump overrated or overvalued his assets, he got a favorable interest rate on various loans that he wouldn't otherwise have gotten if he had given the honest um, interest rate. Uh, I'm sorry, the honest uh, value assessment. And therefore, this guy computes that uh, based on his getting the interest rate that he should not otherwise have gotten because of his uh, eva- overvaluation of assets, uh, he reaped a hundred or the banks lost $168 million in interest payments that they would otherwise have gotten if Trump had given them accurate figures. Now, this is a, this is preposterous, um, as a theory for a variety of reasons. One is, remember, this is the case that the prosecutors turned their nose up at first, you know, my old office was the first one, the federal prosecutors in the Southern District of New York were the first one that had this investigation. And then when they didn't take the case, because they didn't think there was anything there, Cy Vance later um, replaced as, uh, by Alvin Bragg as the, as the district attorney of New York, went up not once but twice to get finan- uh, to the Supreme Court to finally win access to Trump's financial records. And then when they saw them, it turned out that the the criminal case that they thought was there wasn't there. So they didn't pursue it. Do you think there's any chance the prosecutors would not have pursued this case if they could approve that Trump built uh, uh, banks Mm -hmm. and insurance companies out of $168 million? Mm -hmm. I mean, this would have been like, this would have been the first thing they'd have gone after. Remember, Alvin Bragg went, brought the hush money case over one hundred and thirty thousand dollars that nobody right. actually lost any money on, right? Right. So 
it's not like he was too embarrassed to take even a crappy case. Here, imagine there was a $168 million fraud and he, he didn't prosecute it or the Southern District didn't prosecute it. Are you kidding? So um, you, you should be suspicious about this claim in the first place because if it was obviously, if it was true, the prosecutors would have jumped all over it. But the thing is, the banks involved never claimed that they were swindled. Um, and they would have sued if Trump had built them out of $168 million in lost interest payments. There's no evidence in the record that if Trump had told them what New York says was the actual factual value of his assets, that the banks would have offered him different interest terms. There's no evidence of that in the mm -hmm. record. It's completely speculative. So, you know, this idea that New York knows better than the banks knew what the interest rate should have been in these transactions when these are arm's length transactions that were done after the banks did their due diligence about Trump's assets is just ridiculous. But it's clear that the reason they're doing this, the state is, that is, is that they're very sensitive to, to Trump's continued harangue that there were no victims here and that nobody got swindled. So they know it's a big hole in their case and now they're trying to basically... They're accusing Trump of inventing wealth, and their answer to that is to invent mm -hmm. losses that nobody ever claimed. That was just ridiculous. Yeah. So before we move on, so real quick, what's the state of play with with everything else? I was writing a column related to this stuff yesterday, and and I was tr trying to remind myself of the 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 trial dates, or at least the the time frames that are being sought by the prosecutors, and and, and three of the four felony cases. They, they want to have them in March, January 6th case, March, hush money case, March. And Fannie Willis has been petitioning for March as well. Now, obviously, you're not going to have three trials in March and the, the J6 will, will take precedence. But what, what what's the magic about March? Why does everyone want to go in March? Uh, because this was all done for 2024 election purposes. So that's that's the time, right? By March... Trump has the um, has the nomination sewed up, at least as I understand uh, the primary calendar. So if you start a trial in March, especially, you know, they're saying these trials will take about two months. The J6 trial is the, you know, the election interference one is obviously the important one. So you would have a situation, seems to me, you would have a situation where Trump is already the GOP nominee in, in all but like formal uh, yeah. convention nomination, right? But he's got, he's got the delegates, he's got it all wrapped up. And it's always, to my mind, it's always been at that point that the Democrats were hoping to launch. You know, once, once the Republicans are locked into Trump, then that's when the deluge starts. So the idea was to have these trials go. And it, as, as far as Smith is concerned, remember... He pushed very hard to get first to get um, the Mar-a-Lago documents case locked into a May date, and then he pushed Judge Chutkin, the Obama appointee in in the District of Columbia, to give him the March date. Remember, he first he he tried to get an earlier date, but he knew he wasn't going to get that one. Um, but 
The idea here is like a double whammy. You do the March trial that's going to last two months, and that goes right into the Feb- into the uh, May trial, which will last another you know six weeks to eight weeks, uh, and you try to get him convicted of two sets of felonies. And in the meantime, he's already locked in as the Republican nominee. So now all the bad stuff starts to come out at the trial and he gets convicted. And we have like lots of fun that we can, uh, as we've um, projected in some of our prior podcast episodes about whether he would be in jail pending appeal Mm -hmm. and in jail pending sentence and all that jazz. But I think that's the... The magic of March, Rich, is is dictated by the election calendar. Indeed, I think all of this is dictated by the election calendar. I mean, just think about the New York trial that we just talked about. Have you ever heard in New York, the way civil justice works, that you could file a lawsuit in 2022 and get to trial in 2023? Mm-hmm. I mean, in most lawsuits, if you file in 2022, you hope to be in court by like 2030 if you're, you know, depending yeah. on how our, things our, are. Our Michael Mann lawsuit, it took took just 10 years to get it dismissed. It still hasn't gone to trial with the with Mark Stein, who's still in it. Yeah, this is it's extraordinary that these cases are are going to trial. And yet the Democratic prosecutors who are uh, who brought these cases have all pushed very hard to get them on the calendar for 2024. And, you know, I think we talked about this one or two podcasts ago, but, um, you know, Judge Chutkin keeps saying in Washington, D.C., um, that Trump may be running for president, but his First Amendment rights have to give way to the administration of justice of the trial. Now, any good judge would say, wait a minute, there's a way here to easily give Trump his full run of First Amendment rights and yet have perfect administrative justice of the trial. And that is put the trial off until after the election, mm-hmm. then let him campaign. And then you have the trial and you can put whatever can, you know, whatever prohibitions on him that you would put on a normal defendant. But if, but um, if, he, but if he wins, how, how can you treat him as a normal defendant? Well, that's uh, oh, but, but that's not. Said, he won't. <laughs> well, no, no, I'm not assuming he won't, Rich. I'm I'm assuming what the Biden administration always says and what the Justice Department always says, which is that there are no political considerations. In mm-hmm. other words, the the job of the courts and the Justice Department are to do justice in the legal proceeding. It, whether Trump gets elected president or he doesn't get elected president, they're not supposed to calculate that. Mm-hmm. They're not supposed to factor that in. That's not her job, mm-hmm. right? It's not It's not Jack Smith's job to say, judge, I have to get this case to trial because if Trump wins, he could pardon himself and then I'll never get to trial. That's not That's not a proper consideration for a prosecutor. Prosecutor's well, job well, is why, to present the case. Because it's got nothing to do with the justice system. Mm-hmm. A pardon's a political act, but it's a, it's a political act of clemency by the president. You don't factor that in as a prosecutor doing the case. I mean, look, I, I, I have a little bit of experience with this. I happen to have had in one of my last cases uh, that I handled as a, tr- as a lawyer, like a lawyer hand- handling uh, individual cases, I had the Susan Rosenberg um, motion to get her, uh, her, her sentence reduced. 
Susan Rosenberg was a weather underground terrorist who had been sentenced to over 60 years in prison. Um, and she tried to get her sentence reduced because she actually, once she was sentenced in New Jersey, she was never tried uh, in the Southern District. And after about a year of litigation, I convinced the judge to, to keep her sentence intact, at which point Clinton pardoned her at the end of his term. It was always possible that that could happen, but that could that was would not have been mm-hmm. a proper consideration for me or for the judge. Now, you know, frankly, we were shocked that it happened because it would, you know, Eric Holder and Clinton had this little backdoor pardon thing that they were doing, but it's not a proper consideration for the, for the prosecutor or the court. That's like that's in the political realm that that Merrick Garland and Joe Biden and all the rest of them always say. You know, there's a wall between politics and justice. We don't, we're not, we're not worried about that stuff. Um, but it's the only thing that's driving this train when you're talking about when Trump's trials mm-hmm. are being scheduled. Everything's being done according to the political calendar. All right. So let's pause right here. Let me do a quick plug for NR Plus, digital subscription service at National Review. Dot com, your way around our meter paywall, your way if you sign up and log in to see about 90% fewer ads, your way if you want to, to comment on articles and blog posts and get invited to exclusive events with our writers and editors and other conservative figures. So it's a great deal all around. If you haven't signed up already, please consider today, tomorrow, or the day after joining tens of thousands of your fellow National Review readers as a member of NR plus. So Andy, we have ongoing talk in the Gaza war of a pause, the Chiron that was on Fox uh, right before I turned it off to, to do this podcast with you was negotiations ongoing over three day pause to, to allow for the release of, of hostages and other things. Where do you think the pause debate is? Well, I think it's unfortunate that, um, the Israelis are very dependent on support from the United States, so they're being pressured into this. And what really bothers me about this, well, there's a lot of things that should bother all of us, but what I would be okay with this if I thought that there was actually military strategic or geopolitical strategic advantage in it, like if there was a reason for it. But I don't think that's what's going on at all. I think Biden is feeling a lot of heat from the left and his poll numbers are way down. Uh, and as a result of that, he needs to feel, he needs to look like he's putting pressure on the Israelis. Um, and, you know, it, it, they keep talking about Netanyahu. Um, and I, I, I just want to push back on that. Netanyahu is not what he was before this all happened. This is a unity cabinet. He is one of three. Um, but he's become, you know, look, he's the lightning rod. So he's the one they talk about all the time. Um, but I, I think you have a situation where American, the politics of an American election, rather than the geopolitical situation on the ground in the middle East or what's driving this strategic pause um, train because there's nothing strategic about a pause under circumstances where Israel has methodically gone in, um, done it with great care, trying to move 
civilians to uh, to safety. To the extent that the civilians have not uh, been allowed to go to safety, that's because of Hamas, not Israel. Hamas, when Israel has had times in this operation where they have tried to set up corridors for civilians to escape to safety in the south from the north of Gaza, and the Israeli troops have been shot on by jihadists while they were doing that. Because as we've discussed a number of times, civilian casualties, what they call civilian casualties, um, are more effective for Hamas against Israel than their jihadist combat operations. Uh, And we're seeing this again. Nothing they could do in the way of military-type operations, forcible operations, could force Israel to do a three-day pause when they're about to go into Gaza City and root out the main of Hamas's headquarters there. The only way you could get a three-day pause is by making it about the civilians. Not, it's not like Israel needs... It's not like Israel... It, it, the boxing analogy, I, get, I guess, would be like a standing eight count. It's not like Israel's getting pummeled and they need a standing eight count, right? Um, it's Hamas that needs the pause. Uh, and it, the way they're getting it is because of you know, the worry about civilian casualties and the humanitarian disaster. And notice, when they talk about who is in the agreement for the strategic pause, they talk about the United States, Israel, and Qatar. But nobody says Hamas, you know, <laughs> which to me, look, I think that's okay because I think Qatar is Hamas. I think Qatar is the Muslim Brotherhood and that we're deluding ourselves into thinking our enemy is our ally in this. But, you know, the fact of the matter is, if you even if you if you want to pretend that, you know, Hamas is the combatant and Qatar is just our, um, you know, our intermediary performing a valuable service by helping us communicate with the enemy. Okay, fine. But Hamas is not going to agree to a pause, right? Hamas will take advantage of a pause, but you couldn't even mm-hmm. negotiate with Hamas. They're a terrorist organization. Right. So this whole thing is just ridiculous, but it's being driven by American politics. It's not being driven by the needs of uh, the military needs on the ground. So we've had a little little action. We have some more uh, airstrikes, uh, tit for tat style in syria uh i believe uh, over uh yesterday um and this this larger debate or maybe non-debate about iran's role in all of this yeah the non-debate is really i i mean it's uh if you took a step back and thought about it which requires thought because it, the media isn't reporting on it it's really stunning Hamas killed 33 Americans on October 7th. To put that into context, uh, the World Trade Center bombing in 1993, which I was involved in the prosecution of, um, that was six Americans were killed. Um, One of them was uh, a woman who was in the last stages of pregnancy. Um, But we're talking about, you know, seven times, or uh, I'm doing the math wrong, but you get the point. I mean, many times uh, the number of casualties, the number of deaths. Um, Cobar Towers attack, we lost 18 members of the U.S., uh, 19, I'm sorry, members of the U.S. uh, Air Force. The coal bombing, 
in 2000, we lost 17 members of the U.S. Navy. Um, this attack is bigger than, in terms of Americans killed, this attack is much bigger than those attacks. It's bigger than Fort Hood. It's bigger than San Bernardino. It's bigger than all these infamous terrorist attacks. Um, and yet, there is no, when, when October 7th is discussed, um, and even when you, you know, uh, rarely get attention to the fact that Iran is pulling the strings on Hamas. Um, nobody connects the dots and says Iran has just killed 33 Americans through its proxies. They are holding at least 10 American hostages. Uh, I think the reason the media isn't covering this is Jimmy Carter's presidency was essentially destroyed by an Iranian hostage crisis. I mean, there were a lot of other problems with it as well, but that was the signal issue. Um, and they don't want to play it up. The mm -hmm. Biden administration doesn't want to discuss it because they have this vision of um, rearranging the geopolitical chessboard in the Middle East um, so that Iran is empowered and has a different role. I don't think that Biden has abandoned that, even now. Um but the main reason they don't want to talk about it is Donald Trump. You know, if you had the kind of drumbeat, and Rich, you remember what the coverage was like. Um, I mean, I was in, I, I was in, uh, I think I was second, third year of, uh, of college at the time. Um, but the drumbeat every day about the Iranian hostages destroyed uh, Carter's presidency. It just, I mean... It just destroyed it. Yep. Um, and they don't want to have that happen again because they think that that will help Trump. So they're suppressing this issue. But in the meantime, we've had 41 attacks so far. And they're picking up in at least numerous. Uh, the number of them is picking up. Uh, we had more, I think, last week than we've had uh, in any other week. Um, so far, no serious um, casualties. As we understand it, there's been 46 American servicemen who've been injured. Uh, the military now concedes that 25 of them have suffered traumatic brain injuries, uh, but they're not saying, you know, how serious those are, like whether they're bumps <laughs> on the head or something, uh, something worse. But, you know, it's only a matter of time, Rich, if you could, if this is going to continue yep. before something really terrible happens, yeah, and I we've mean, done nothing in response to it, to you know, materially. I mean, we should take out a couple tankers and just say, if, if you want more, let us know. There'll, there'll be much more where that comes from if you if you want it. I well, look, I, I also think that the Iranians have to be made to know that this doctrine we've followed since the Iraq War that their territory is is a safe haven. Forget it. Mm -hmm. You know, I would t I would take out a few things in Iraq. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, in Iran. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think they have to feel vulnerable, which they don't. Yeah. So finally, what is your take on this extraordinary phenomenon? It's been evident for a couple of weeks now, where the White House is asked about anti-Semitism. They say, "Oh, yeah, it's pretty bad," but Islamophobia. You know, their their go-to is Islamophobia. I mean, we had this terrible case, obviously, where this nut job murdered a, a, a young Muslim boy, just horrifying. But otherwise, what, what we're seeing on, on the streets, you know, it's not Muslim people being beaten up, not that anyone would, would want that, that would be terrible, or being intimidated. It's, it's all 
going the all the other way. It's all directed at at Jews, but they the White House can't bring itself just to say, okay, yeah, anti-Semitism, that's really bad, period, end of story, Islamophobia, and associated hatreds always have to be uh, linked linked to it. Yeah, look, I think Chris Ray testified about a week ago, right, that there were um, that Jews made up two percent of the population, and they suffer sixty percent of the of the uh, hate violence, the category of hate violence that they that they talk about um, of those attacks. Uh, and I'm sure he he was not most popular guy in the uh, Biden administration mm-hmm. for pointing that out. But I think, Rich, that this is really um, kind of the flip side of what happened in the Obama-Biden administration beginning in 2009 when counterterrorism in the United States was no longer allowed to be called counterterrorism. In the government, uh, they officially changed the national security strategy to something they call countering violent extremism. The word terrorism was out. And the reason the word terrorism was out, just like the word jihadist was out and mujahideen was out and all those other, you know, we had a whole glossary of things we weren't allowed to say anymore, right? But scripturally, um, and I probably heard this a million times presenting the evidence in my trial back in the 90s, um, the the Quran instructs and the Hadith instruct um, jihadists to strike terror into the heart of the enemies of Islam. It's, uh, you know, it's there like a million times. The, the, um, the people who like the blind Sheikh who render the scriptures to young Muslim men hit at that again and again and again, to the point that in 19, in the ninth beginning in the 1990s, but this goes back to Hezbollah in the eighties, it became, um, it became almost redundant to talk about Islamic terrorism because terrorism conveyed the idea that we're talking about jihadism uh, because it happened frequently enough and they were, and the attacks were increasingly audacious. So the Obama administration, which was threaded with um, people who came from Islamist organizations that were um, connected to the Muslim brotherhood and the, and the Obama administration furthermore had formal uh, and informal relationships uh, with a number of these big Islamist organizations that were connected to the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, those those operatives in the government and those organizations punched way above their weight. They got the Obama administration to strike terrorism out of our vocabulary in the national security space. And they changed it to violent extremism. They made it very clear when they changed the nomenclature that what they were trying to avoid was any association of Islam with terrorism or with with violence because Islam was a religion of peace. And they weren't the first ones to to say that, obviously. That That was rhetoric that was popular in the Bush administration as well. But they formally, the Obama administration did, um, broke the the tie between the idea of terrorism and any association with Islam. That was the reason for changing it to violent extremism. And that was the reason for um, purging the national security 
agencies, meaning uh, the Justice Department, the FBI, military intelligence, or other intelligence agencies, all these guys who were instructors in Sharia supremacist ideology and the connection between the, the commands of the scripture and the violence that we were seeing again and again and again, those people were, were basically cashiered. They were out. Um, the violent extremism strategy instructed people that we were not to look at the ideological underpinnings of violence because any ideology, if it was taken to an extreme, could cause violence. That was the, that was the whole idea. So, you know, when they, when they now have to feel like they have to acknowledge um, anti-Semitism, they have to couple it with Islamophobia to be consistent with what they've been doing since 2009, because the whole idea was to purge any trace of not just the use of force, but the incentive to use force from Islamic ideology. Uh, and they're this is just doing what they're doing now is just the flip side of that. Uh, and the cause of it, I think, is that they are very, very influenced, uh, into, including in personnel who work not only at the White House, but uh, mainly for Democrats uh, in Washington. Um, but they're very influenced by uh, these people who are on their staffs and these people who are connected to these brotherhood organizations. And that's just, they, they punch way above their, their weight policy-wise. Um, and, you know, back in the old days, again, they got, they got even the word terrorism struck from our, uh, our counterterrorism <laughs> strategy was no longer able to say terrorism. Uh, and now you can't say anti-Semitism unless you add Islamophobia for the same reasons. All right. Well, that's all the time we have. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shuddy. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And thank you, Andy McCarthy. Thanks, Rich.